Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Warm, that old queen. A candid and adult take on queer life quandaries at a certain age. So please listen at your own discretion. Presented by Bernie and Tommy, the views here are purely those of the content providers and in no way reflect those of any service you may hear this program on. Now, please let your ears be upstanding for the <coughs> old queen. Hello, Tommy. How are you doing? I'm all right, really. Yeah, I'm very. I feel very grateful at the moment that I know so many creative people that are doing so many interesting things online that I can get involved in, and I can just literally fill the day with a schedule of like yoga, camp dance routines, <laughs> um, schedules. <laughs> Film film screenings with after show Q and A's. You know, I can just I can do it all really without leaving the flat. I know. I feel what I feel is like you've really embraced the situation that we're in a, a lot more than I have in many respects. Um, because you're, I think you're very much a go getter, whereas I'm a more of a sit back and wait for it to happen. <laughs> People describe me as tenacious. I don't quite know what that means, but I think that those bitches. No, it is a compliment. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, I mean, I've I'm kind of feel like I'm getting into the swing of this. I know we've got a lot more of this to go, but <clears throat> I'm kind of embracing it a little bit more and um, finding ways in which I can cope with everything, which is good. So what have we got coming up this episode, Tom? Oh, you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. <laughs> I always, I always do all this, all that. I, why don't you do it this week? <laughs> um, so 
We've got the feature, What That Really Old Queen. So I've been doing a bit of research about that. And so I sort of feel like without actually, without much kind of um, discussion around it, we've slowly become much more interested in our queer histories. Mm. Um, And so, and that's just sort of naturally evolved, I guess, really. And so we've got a guest coming on, Sasha Coward. Um, who's going to talk about uh, what he has been doing in the lockdown and and his his role and his in his research within queer histories? Yeah, because he does a thing called Museum at Home, mm. so um, which is um, about linking up with uh, mu- museums, but obviously they're shut at the moment, so it's slightly outreachy, but all on Twitter and social media. Yeah, he's very good on Twitter. Yeah, he's on it all the bloody time. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, as he was coming on the show i signed up I'm to his sure. account i said that's only polite yeah well yeah but then uh, my um, phone's going off every five minutes because he posts all the time <laughs> a lot more than we do yeah. but you know maybe that's a lesson to us we need to post a little bit more uh, well as we're all historical i mean it's called what that old queen i guess it yeah. fits the whole historical genre for us to talk about yeah. that stuff um all yeah, and we're- curious about those things yeah definitely so um with what that old kink uh this week we're going back to delve in a little bit deeper to greco-roman times lovely it'd be interesting to know how much sasha knows about that or not i would imagine that he would know quite a lot about it but we'll see i think that the thing about people that work in histories is they often they have quite clear um parameters about where their expertise is Yes. But he doesn't actually strike me as that as one of those people. He seems much more interested in, in everything. Yeah. A bit like us, really. Although most of ours has a sexual connotation. True, yeah. This is all for our History of Sex book, which will be coming out shortly after lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's a copy paper for our book. Of course it is. It's going to be more pictures and words, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I won't read it. Anyway, shall we do... I know, yeah. I was just going to say, I've got so many amazing books to read and I do have this problem that I, I really struggle to read. Like, I really have to focus my energy. So I'm still ploughing through. I have the same books. thing because I have to read scripts for a living. So it's a bit of a busman's holiday for me to read a book. I know it's completely different because it's voiceover scripts and things like that. Mm. But I... I tend not to do it that much, but I did, I have signed up to um, Audible and I do quite like to listen to a, to a talking book. I, li- I listen to a lot of Audible, but the Audible books that I love to listen to are more like memoirs. Those are the ones that really I enjoy mm. the most, specifically the ones that people are talking in their own voice. Yeah, well, they're the ones so to interesting. Grace Collington, who's the, yeah, the, she's the art director of um, Vogue and actually completely turned me off her, whereas I really liked her in um, in the documentary, The September Issue. Oh, wow. But hey, hey you get to know people more than me. Well, yes, a bit like this podcast. I really- I really like Mel B's um, autobiography, which she doesn't read. She just reads the she just reads the introduction, um, and she, would, she said something like, "These some of these stories are I can't do a Leeds accent. Some of these stories are still quite painful, and I'm still processing them. So I've got my friend Zara to read them for me. <laughs> Basically, she couldn't be asked. I would have done it." 
What I want them to do is make an opera about Mel B's life. Yes. Why not a pop a opera? Lot. Yeah. Ooh, let's think about it. Maybe we could write that. Shall we move on to what that really old queen? Yes. Or is it Mel B? <laughs> it's not Mel B, but one of these weeks it might end up being. But I wanted to talk to you about um, the Bolton Park scandal. Oh. And this was a scandal, a court case that happened in the 1870s. So often you see Bourne Park um, court case or the scandal within a sort of LGBT timeline. And so I was kind of curious to know a little bit more about the individuals that were connected to that court case. So specifically, this is about Thomas Ernest Bolton and William Frederick Park. And so they both actually came from London and they both came from quite sort of comfortable middle class backgrounds. Bolton was the son of a stockbroker. Park was a law student. And they met, I think they probably met in their early 20s and became really close friends and started to develop um, a theatrical touring act that they would tour around, performing um, as sort of female impersonators um, with the names Stella and Fanny, but also performing dressed as men as well. So they kind of switched it a a bit. Um, And they were just real kind of figures um, of the West End and frequented a lot of events as well as performing at the West End themselves. And there was one other figure involved within their sort of intimate circle, which was Lord Arthur Clinton. Um, So he's the godson of the Prime Minister at that time, William Gladstone, um, and he became quite integral to this court case. Uh, And he was lit in the early part of that relationship. He was living with Stella as as kind of man and wife, I guess, really. Was the Lord, Um, is he like an evil character in this story? He is, I wouldn't, well, I kind of guess he's he's slightly evil because he doesn't stick around to face the consequences. Uh, so you could call him that. Yeah, they but never just do. Very, yeah. But definitely a case of like um, someone that's um, using, using their advantages of their power and wealth to um, remove themselves from a very tricky situation. Right which obviously is still the case now in modern government. Yeah, definitely. Um, So the night in question was um, in April 1870. Bolton Park was seen leaving a house and getting into a cab and going to the Strand Theatre in Regent Street. And there they were seen meeting up with a few other men before going into the theatre and all together being in a private box. They, I guess they went to see a show, they saw the show, and then when they came out, all of them were arrested, and they were accused of sodomy, and um, Stella and Fanny, or Bolton Park, were accused of dressing up as women. Um, now, all of these men, I think there was about eight of them, they were probably, re- well, they were, they were referred to as, like, very proper gentlemen. So they were probably all quite high-standing, either in government or, you know, well-respected figures. Some of them managed to escape and not be part of the, the court case that ensued. Um, but others others were examined anally because they were accused of having anal sex. 
And that evidence was inconclusive whether they or they had been having anal sex. There was no evidence that they'd ha- they'd had that. I mean, I don't know whether they were talking about what was happening in a theatre box or they were t- they were searching for longer term. Yeah, I was incident. gonna I was gonna ask: Is it <laughs> were they having sex and dressing up as women at the theatre? Because I mean, that's not really the point of theatre. That kind of happens on stage. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that they were followed from coming out of this house and taking a cab. So maybe the police were particularly interested in what had been happening in the house that they initially started their journey of that evening from. Oh. But the court case, the court case happened, and as I say, two of the men, or a few of the men, absconded. I think that's the word. They. They weren't. Um, they didn't face the trial, and um, this man, uh, the Lord Arthur Clinton, the MP, actually died the day before the court case. Oh wow! Yeah, which is quite interesting. Um, now there are rumours that he didn't actually die; that he changed his identity and went to another country. So we don't we, we don't really know what happened him allegedly but anyway yeah but the verdict <laughs> the court the um jury made their decision and decided that uh, bolton park were innocent because there was no proof that they'd ha- that any of these men had been having anal sex because they'd been examined and that was not the case and it wasn't it wasn't illegal to be dressing as a woman so they couldn't put that against them bolton and park were quite like it seems to me that like they were quite masters of being able to adapt and dress accordingly and both presented in court as beautifully dressed gentlemen right um yeah so they kind of knew what game to play I like the idea of this court case because one of the things that was used in evidence that was dragged into court was a trunk of dresses. <laughs> <laughs> Does it describe any of the addresses? Um, no, it doesn't. No, but there is there has been dramatizations of this story that kind of I guess they put that imaginary flesh on those bones, I guess. Yeah. There's a really interesting bizarre development that happened after Um, the court case, there's this woman called Mary Jane Furness who was arrested because she decided to impersonate this um, Lord Arthur Clinton, but Lord Arthur Clinton dressed as a woman. (laughs) Amazing. Was this before or after his death? Yeah, this was like, this was a couple of years after, so that she was saying that she was, that there was these kind of rumours going around that he hadn't actually died, that he was living another life. And then this woman comes on the scene saying that she is actually him. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Maybe it was. So it's very, like, it's got lots of twists and turns, the story, um, Bolton Park. And I'm particularly interested in this story because I think like a lot of performers, we're kind of out of a job currently at the moment. And um, I decided that I'm going to just learn a, a monologue and perform it for camera and then I'm going to release it next week on my socials. And one of my favourite directors and um, writers is Neil Bartlett, who I had the privilege of working with as my mentor. And he wrote this beautiful play about Stella. And there's two versions of Stella. There's the, there's the young kind of Stella that's having a great time um, doing the theatrical shows. And then sadly, Stella... Uh, died living in quite a poor part of London 
and threw away all the kind of trappings of her female identity um, and and led quite a lonely life. And so there's this there's this other figure. So there's there's the two Stellas that perform in the play, and I'm going to learn that um, a small section, a four minute section of the of the older Stella. That's amazing. That sounds great. Maybe I'll do that. I remember when I um, when I did the showcase for the uh, acting school that I went to, I did a proportion of the introduction from the monologue at the beginning of Torch Song Trilogy. Mm. Do you remember that? Well, and the book that I'm getting the monologues from is the uh, Oberon Book of Queer Monologues, which is edited by my friend Scotty. Oh, amazing. Um, it's a whole, a whole collection of different monologues. And Torch Song Trilogy is also in there as well, and I thought I might have a go at that one too because those were the, those were the two that really jumped at me that I was thought because I'm quite interested in because the work that I make is quite often just sort of I develop it myself, but I, I was quite interested just to work with other people's material really. Yeah, and the, I think the Torch Song Trilogy one is quite poignant for you um, because it's uh, that character does a similar thing to what you do yeah. in a way, and it's also really funny and tragic at the same time. Well, I think both of the ones like Stella and the Torch Song Trilogy one are talking about the kind of two identities of the performed and the inside kind of interior Turmoil. landscape person. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it, it's I just realised, well, I, it's a constant re- realisation is how hard it is to learn lines for me, but I'm getting <laughs> Repetition. Repetition. And what I used to do as well is record them because my audio memory is kind of better than my visual one. So if I hear something, it goes in my brain better. So I used to record them and then listen to them back over and over again. I, I once had six days to learn a play and sure. yeah, it was, it was quite something, but I did it. But I guess your brain just, when it has to do it, it does it, right? Yeah, because I think part of the thing is I build in this thing of just like putting something off, but if you don't have to put it off, then you just go straight in it. Definitely. My memory is different to that mine is completely visual so i have to draw the words as pictures and then i remember where the pictures connect up oh okay musical theater was quite different for me but actually what helped because it's walking talking singing dancing what helped me learn the words i had to learn the words to this andrew lloyd webber song and it's so boring because it's andrew lloyd webber and i just couldn't i kept singing the same the second verse the same as the first verse because it's all exactly the bloody same and the only way that i learned the words was because i connected them to the movements that i was doing in the dance to the song um and then Mm -hmm. it's kind of like two kind of it's like muscle memory and mind memory working together i suppose another really good way of remembering words is is imagining a journey that you do quite often Mm. and then locating each each kind of chunk of text in a kind of destination on the way to the final destination that's way too clever for me i'd forget where i'm going well these days (laughs) just like to the bathroom and out again (laughs) yeah the other day i spent the whole day in the bedroom because i was fed up of being in the living room (laughs) it's true and tonight i'm coming from the kitchen area which is different from the living room where i normally am i'm changing a lot of stuff around in my flat every day so i'm putting a different chair somewhere or putting a different throw somewhere on something so it always feels slightly different yeah that's good yeah maybe i should do that i don't know it's it's difficult to find 
interesting things to do when you're stuck at home on your own. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> and other than online shopping which i really can't afford to do because i've got no income at the moment um <laughs> i'm watching some telly and doing a little bit of work that comes in um yeah i'm finding it difficult to to occupy myself but you know it's getting easier as time goes by and getting used to this new paradigm that we seem to be in oh i think sasha coward's gonna join us hi sasha how are you I am very well. Hello, boys. How's it going? Hey, Sasha. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on board. This is very fun. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. My husband is watching Phantom of the Opera, so given the choice, I'd much rather be upstairs. Oh, it's really weird. We've just been talking about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Well, because they're doing their um, their Friday screening, so it's quite cute. He kind of gets his mates together and they pretend that they're going to the theatre. So they have half-time drinks, and he's even put on, like, some, I don't know, phantom makeup. But um, Lloyd Webber doesn't really do it for me, I have to be honest. No. Although Phantom's probably the best one. Yeah, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I find some of the songs in Joseph quite catchy. Um, but they're, they're all, they're all pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me, Sasha. You seem very wholesome and well-rounded. Yeah. Thanks for coming on to our naughty queer oh. podcast. What's on your t-shirt? Uh, my t-shirt, I'm quite proud of this one, is, um, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but as the actual artists that they were. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Uh, I love I it. Have a thing. I'm wearing my Superman t-shirt in honor of you, Sasha, because I know you have a couple of these, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I seem to have gained a number of superhero t-shirts. I approve of the Rainbow Superman. Thanks. <laughs> I'm also a bit of a t-shirt fiend. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what what you do, Sasha? Yeah, it's it's a funny one. So the boring title is I'm a museum sponsor, and it basically means. I travel around museums doing projects that I think are interesting. Now, the interesting title is probably Mermaid Hunter, uh, in that I used to work at the National Maritime Museum and I got really into mermaid folklore and queer folklore, the links between mythology, mythical creatures and sexuality and gender. So that's something that I think is really interesting. I love looking for those LGBTQ stories that are sort of hidden behind the main narrative. Uh, and I'm also an escape room designer. So I'm basically the most hipster person you've ever met. Um, <laughs> mermaid folklore escape rooms. I mean, I should have my own brewery or something. Um, but yeah, it's fun. It's really fun. And I'm delighted to sometimes be paid to do it, which is awesome. And in the Maritime Museum, you did a screening of Little Mermaid, yeah? Yeah. So How did that go? I, it was really good fun. The idea was kind of steal a little bit from secret cinema if you've ever been to one of those but kind of queer it a bit so we did a screening of the little mermaid but we had three drag performers uh son of a tutu um and another performer went as ariel the middle-aged mermaid and scarlet o'hora who's a bio drag queen and they interrupted the performance so when it would go into a song so they'd show on the screen it wouldn't be ursula it would sort of like peter out as if the you know the reel had run out and then out would come out son of a tooth as ursula and do her rendition of that song instead that so was like drag mixed with mermaids so we kind of took disney and kind of made it as queer as it should be <laughs> i was kind of interested in like all the research that you've done in kind of mythology in terms of like what 
what you see, whether there is a connection between like maybe sort of gender fluid people or um, queer people with the mermaid hair or the kind of the unicorns. What, like what is the connection between that and and the actual the old school mythologies? So, I mean, to start with the, the probably the most known story, but it's still a story that people don't know that well. So Hans Christian Andersen, the, the most well-known Western story of mermaids, he wrote it after being dumped by a bloke. So he was biromantic. His diaries show that he was writing, you know, love letters to men and to women. And he was also a very kind of kinky bugger as well. He was um, recording every time he had a wank um, in his diary. He would do an upside down crucifix. So he was an interesting kind of character in terms of sexuality. But The Little Mermaid was born out of rejection um, by a same sex lover. So he wrote The Little Mermaid. If you read it from that context, the original version of the story, you have this half-formed creature. She's kind of cursed. So in the original story, mermaids don't have souls. When they die, they turn into sea foam. And she just wants to basically get the prince. In his version of the story, she, she doesn't get the prince in the end. She sacrifices herself. She also gets her tongue cut out with a pair of scissors. And she's cursed with legs that when she walks, it feels like walking on broken glass. A horrible, it's a horrible story to take kids. And then when it goes into Disney, you've got Howard Ashman, who worked on that. And he created all the songs like Part of Your World. He made it so Ursula the Sea, which is based on a drag queen on Divine. Mm. Um, so there's this super queer narrative. And if you, if you listen to Howard Ashman voicing Part of Your World, and you remember this is a man who's just been diagnosed with HIV, and he will die two years later whilst being on Beauty and the Beast. The profoundness and the meaning of the lyrics, like, it switches up. You know, I want to be where the people are. And you think of, like, the nightclubs of New York uh, mm. closing down and the gay community falling apart. Wow. So that, that's the contemporary stuff. But yeah, I've been doing the, the Viral Film Festival on Instagram. And last week they showed um, Little Shop of Horrors, which Harold Ashman wrote the songs for. And um, they talked about the, the kind of painful, most beautiful Oscar um, acceptance speech that his partner uh, had. And it's on YouTube and I just watched it and it's just heartbreaking. It, it always moves me. If you, you know, I know not everyone's a Disney person. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I'm not, I'm not naturally obsessed with Disney, but I like it because the layers that are there. So I'm happy that you know, a lot of people are sickened that Ariel gets the, the guy at the end. But in the end, I, I think in Disney, for Howard, I'm kind of happy that this queer mermaid gets a happy ending. And then at the end of um, Beauty and the Beast, just like you were saying, there's an acknowledgement, um, which I think was partly put together by his partner who asked Disney to do this. And it says to Howard, who gave a mermaid her voice and taught the beast to love. And it's just very cute. And it's very, it's such a fascinating, Thing, subtext to something we grew up with and instantly I'm hooked I'm completely fascinated by that and it it I think it's shocking that not many people know that story about a film that is so camp you know at the end try to make some massive rainbow um you know gays queers trans peeps dressing up as mermaids for pride and yet we we don't know that we own this like mm. we have a real ownership of this story yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm completely drawn into it. You've got this uh, brilliant blog about uh, the mermaids. And um, I've been doing this sort of um, art in quarantine thing where you reenact, like, a, a famous picture. 
um, you know, in with all this domestic stuff that you have around. And I did um, Queen Elizabeth the other week. But then there's this one that you've got at the bottom of a, of a merman. And I was like, oh, maybe I could do that coming out of the bar. <laughs> you totally should. <laughs> Although you look pretty good as a merman yourself, Sasha, I have to say. I've seen the pictures. Uh, apologies. I am a disgusting oversharer on Twitter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you own the mermaid tale and it's led to some very strange conversations where people misunderstand that when I say I'm into mermaids, I'm not into mermaids in right. <laughs> the tale is you probably as a prop but not that kind of prop it, it's um, not your king it's not my kink i mean don't get me wrong a hunky merman sure great wonderful live for it um but i don't want to flop around with a fish tail it's incredibly <laughs> there's plenty of people that do and that should yeah. be allowed yeah totally uh, absolutely. <laughs> you know great grand fantastic the brief foray into instagram which i then had to run away from um I, I ended up being followed by quite a few you know mermen and mermaids people that, that they're really into dressing up and doing that um and they found like an outlet in it and there's a whole body positivity movement to it there's a lot of wonder there it's just it's just not my thing um but i love that mermaids as a symbol are taken by lots of different communities and people to be empowering that's really cool Sasha, what I also love that you do on Twitter is that like your little one minute stories, like historical stories. They're amazing. Where do you yeah. get the inspiration for that? So I, I don't know if you know Dan Vo, and if you are looking for other people to have in your show, he's a wicked dude. So he does the LGBT history tours for um, the VNA. We are friends in real life as well as kind of being work friends. And we were talking just before lockdown, like, okay, this is kind of shit. Like we are um, working in museums and the museums are closing. What do we do? <laughs> like our entire meaning for working is disappearing. So on this WhatsApp conversation, I said, why don't we like pretend that the word museum is a verb and you can museum anywhere you want. You can museum from your bathtub or from the kitchen. So what would we do normally be doing? We'd be talking about things that we love. So can we just do that anyway? Partly because I'm going to get very rusty. And if after you know three months, four months, whatever it is, I have to give a tour and I suddenly can't talk, that's going to be rubbish. Um, we also want to give freelancers a chance to kind of go, hey, I can still do stuff, um, digital content. And also, more importantly, people that are stuck indoors can remember that those stories, those weird things, all that stuff is still there. It's, it may be locked in a glass cabinet and you can't go there right now, but it's still there. Those stories are still there. Well, we're all I locked in a glass cabinet at the moment. <laughs> it feels like it's a really good opportunity to kind of learn more. Like there's one story that you get where there's a Viking um, a, a body that's, that's buried and the remnants are found and then there's the testing that happens and this body is found to be have the genetic makeup of female. Is that right? Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so this is where things get really, like, and it's wonderful that there's beauty in the vagueness and complexity, but it's very difficult to talk about sexuality and gender in the past. You really should do it anyway, but it is still really tough. So with Vikings, this particular burial, um, they found it and it was found in the kind of 1800s. And they were like, well, this guy, because he's surrounded by uh 
you know, axes and, and swords, must be a warrior. So it's a man. It's definitely this amazing warrior. And then 128 years later, they actually did the testing on the bones and they found that this person had XX chromosomes. So then the reaction was then to go, wow, this woman, this incredible shield maiden, when the truth might well be somewhere in between. Mm. Um, because in Viking society, the construct of gender was really complicated. And to be honest, if you lived your life as a woman, and you were seen to be a woman, you probably wouldn't be fighting many battles. But that doesn't mean that if you were born XX chromosomes or, you know, uh, biologically defined as female, you couldn't transition and become something different. And you could become some, you could even become a man who did men's things because it was still a massive patriarchy. Or you could become something that was sort of in between. Um, a lot of Viking mythology and gods, they were transitioning, they were fluid. So the Viking understanding of gender was less about what's between your legs and more like, what do you do and how do you live? And then that defined who you were. So this person, they could have been a woman. They could have been a shield maiden. They could have identified themselves as a man. They may not have used those pronouns at all. It's just, it's, it's exciting. That's the interesting thing. How do you feel that can teach things for people today's society? I think there is a lot of... Um, if you can't if you can't see it you can't be it so i remember as a teenager i was a geek i loved museums but i didn't feel that they loved me back uh because you go there and you look in the paintings and there was none of the relationships i wanted to have were there um i at least when i was going on school trips i never saw any queer anything now for for trans people and gender fluid people if they can see themselves represented in the past in multiple different ways around the world there's a way of going like i exist and people like me have always existed. And that validity, that ability to go, I'm not just a weird fluke. I haven't just popped up in the past five years, like the Daily Mail might want us to think. Like, I have an incredible legacy. I am part of the tapestry of human history. Like, that's really empowering. So I think seeing a story like, you know, this, this Viking person and seeing it from all those different angles, you can empower loads of different people. This could be this kick-ass Viking woman. This could be this kick-ass trans man. This could be, you know, there's loads of ways of seeing it and all of them are, are equally possible. Yeah. Because when I, heard, when I first heard that story, it was a trans woman that was telling me that story and she really felt like she wanted to claim it, you know. You could see that felt like a real strong connection with this story and it's exactly what you're saying like people need to see their own identities reflected back at them in the past it's really interesting because we do a thing called what that old kink we're, we're becoming way more historical on what that old queen um than we used to be and um so last week we were talking about the ancient egyptians and it was interesting that you were saying that the viking gods were fluid whereas the ancient egyptian gods were quite fluid in fact you know, gender was very fluid in that society as well. Um, so it's 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 yeah. really interesting how some of these ancient societies kind of are, are mirroring our society where we're where we're getting to in our society now in terms of acceptance yeah. um, with all of these things. I think the challenging thing is you can go too far. You can become misty-eyed about the past. Now, it's not that the past was better; it was just that the past was but what it does show is it shows that the way things are now is not how they've always been so the things that we take for granted as this is male and this is female and this is butch and this is femme and that, that stuff total 
construct total just you know thrown together like a cocktail in the past 100 years maybe um so it's kind of useful to go yeah the past you know, we look at the Romans, for example, a lot of the time, um, you know, I'm, I'm a cis gay man. Uh, we have an affiliation with, oh, they, 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 they liked gay sex. They were all about it. And they were also really about paedophilia and really problematic stuff. And women were property. And so you, you kind of, it's not like you want to go go back in time in the time machine and leave, live your perfect queer existence in the past. But you can look across like the whole spread of human history and go, do you know what? This stuff that you are shouting at me about on Twitter, this stuff that is using to oppress people like me, it's BS. It's it doesn't mean anything because it's been so different all throughout history. Well, well and I, I was just thinking about the suffragettes when we were talking about that in terms of the fact that you know uh, uh, there was a big contingency of them, they were very racist, uh, and and there was the whole celebration of them recently, which is great, but. It, we shouldn't be celebrating them. We should be celebrating what they, what they did in that yeah. capacity. Sasha, are you going to stay with us? We're going to have a little break now. Yeah, I'm happy to, as long as you're, you're still happy to have me rabbit on. Well, of course. Well, so we're going to do What That Old Kink afterwards, and we're going to talk about Greco-Roman times. So you can have a little bit of input on that, because you're probably way more of a specialist than I am. I've just done the minutest bit of research online. Um, but before we go to the break, I'm just going to do some inspirational quotes as we're all going through this nightmare of lockdown so um uh, i don't know who any of these are by but it's be yourself uh, everyone else is already taken no one can make you feel inferior without your consent and darkness cannot drive out darkness only the light can do that um we will be back after this Right, so we're back, and we are going to do what that old kink. It'd be interesting to have your input on this, Sasha, because you obviously know a little bit more about history than I do. But for this week's what that old kink, we're delving back into the ancient Greco-Roman times and um, some of their ideas behind sex. Uh, so ancient Greek and Romans. Greco-Roman times. Is it? Is it when, like? what when when in when in is that because i in my head i put them into greeks and then romans but obviously they ran concurrently at the same time well, they kind of merged into learned, each other didn't they yeah well if you learn about it in year, year six it gives you the sense that these separate you do like romans one term and then you do greeks the next term and you do egyptians another time and then you realize they were all trading with each other yeah at the same time yeah so greeks kind of is is the earliest overlaps with the romans and then you've got rome um and then egypt sort of like runs along parallel and kind of changes in the background right okay well anyway my minuscule uh bit of research that i've done um so ancient greeks and romans this is from an, an uh another article from list first which we've been doing over the last few weeks so ancient Greeks and Romans were highly liberated towards sex and had gods devoted to it. 
Uh, they also had festivals to partake in it, and local economies were surrounded in it, a bit like today. Uh, uh, and I, I think I actually want to go to a sex festival, um, but I'm not sure there are any at the moment. Uh, sex was nothing to be ashamed of, and it wasn't hidden away. Pompeii was the original city of sin. Its economy thrived on more than 40 brothels, and the most famous was the Lupinar Grande, or Pleasure House. Brothels were highly public and an unashamed platform alongside forums and communal bathhouses. And they had phallic bricks on the walls to point the way to the nearest pleasure house uh, with an erect penis. And they were also, these phallic bricks were also positioned above doors of brothels and residences to bring good luck. I mean, the phallus was yep. quite a big thing in, yeah. in Greco-Roman times, I think. Yeah, I mean, in ancient Greece, you have, uh, there's a god, Priapus, uh, mm. who's basically... Just, I'm coming on to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you think about, do you know in Pei, um, some of the graffiti that they found? Yeah, I didn't delve into that, but tell us a bit more about that. It, it's very, like, pubescent, but there's things that are like, you know, Galvionis, the gladiator, makes the girls moan, um, you know, all written in, in Latin, which is hysterical. It's all very childish. Like, it's the kind of stuff that teenagers are writing today. Um, <laughs> I know, it's really... You, you imagine, like, the way that we study, like, the Romans and the Greeks, and you see them in museums, it's always on a plinth, and it's very beautiful, and it's all white marble, and various, but, you know, actually, they were very childish in some senses. And their understanding of sex was, was just very different so it's it's in some ways they were very very victorian like in some ways they were very very uptight there were certain things you just would not do but walking around naked wouldn't have been that shocking <laughs> no and, and um we're getting on to the etruscans in a minute yeah yeah so and if you were to go to a friend's house and you saw a massive pornographic mosaic, you wouldn't even be slightly shocked. You just carry on drinking your wine and eating. And your best mate might give you a really kinky knife handle. Uh, so in, in, in the nearby museum, the Corinthian Museum of Ancestor, they have this knife. And it's really funny because they have all these knives and they're all lined up. They're very pretty in the cabinet. And first one's like, a, it's got a hair on it. And the next one's got a dog. The next one's got a leaf. And the next one has got three people balanced on top of each other, all penetrating each other. <laughs> and it just says underneath it, it's got one line that just says erotic knife. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, nothing else. that's a bit like going around to Tommy's house for dinner. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Voyeur voyeurism was quite big and there's lots of art of attendants or other adults watching couples having sex. Uh, we mentioned the Etruscans. Yep. They had a loose regard to marriage. Women used to wander around naked and uh, wives swapping and sex with pretty much anyone was common. And the big sex festival, which is what I'm interested in, was the Carnival of Ancient Literature. I mean, the Hay on Why Literature Festival <laughs> has nothing on this and it has a lot to live up to. So there was no saying no. And they were very extravagant. Uh, they, were, they were orgies of wine and sex and had every kind of drunkenness and aberration of sex, one leading up to the other. What reigned overall was the phallus. Festivals yeah. usually held at the spring equinox and called the Dionysian Mysteries. And they were dedicated to yeah. that god. And apparently these fist, uh, festivals inspired the Bacchanalia, which was the Roman equivalent I like that so you don't... said festivals. 
I know. I know. I love that. I <laughs> Freudian slip. Um, yeah, but if you think of so Dionysus was the of wine, and then Bacchus is the Roman equivalent. So they just kind of copied and pasted all their gods, and so um, the whole bacchanalia. Um, is this whole idea that you basically go out into the woods, you get really, really drunk and possibly high, and then you just all sleep with each other. Sounds amazing. Well, <laughs> I, this is the thing. I, I want. I want to. You know, I love. I love talking about this, but it also sounds. It sounds a bit manic. Like it does sound all a bit like crazy. People got killed. You know, people lost their lives during this. And also the idea that you were saying about the phallus. It was very much in Greco-Roman. It was largely about male pleasure. So, yeah, that there are a lot of stories about willies and penises and penis gods and fun things that men could do with other men and women and lots of women and horses and anything. Don't get much about what pleasure women are getting from it. They're often described as being slightly like to the side. Mm. Um, so there's still a massive patriarchy. Even though they were very liberal about some things, it was generally all about pleasuring the man. And when you look at ancient history, are there cultures or societies that feel like that, that pleasure-giving feels a bit more equal? So there are, like, I'm trying to think, the, the origin of the word lesbian and sapphic, for example. So if we think about Greece, there were groups of, of women or people who kind of came together um, so the poet Sappho, um, so she wrote incredibly erotic poetry about other women. She went to the island of Lesbos, which is where we get the word lesbian. And then you have other things like, um, I love the idea of the Amazons. So there's a really interesting read on who were the Amazons, what actually were they? Well, they were a group of, some people argue, trans women. So there are some very interesting um, writings about the idea that they were maybe um, taking... Uh, they were riding horses and taking hormone hormone from the uh, horses in Estra and actually transitioning by taking those. Oh, wow. Uh, but then other people say that this was an entirely female society and kind of sounds, you know, there's a lot of examples of them, of them marrying with each other or becoming bonded together. Um, so there may have been ways as, as a woman to kind of get together and escape this patriarchy um, by going to an island, by joining an Amazonian cult, by being a priestess. Um, there's a lot of talk of, you know, priestesses, um, for some of the gods, they would have to reach um, climax to, to um, be able to speak to their god, but it had to be delivered by another woman. So you're thinking that if you are a woman who fancies having sex with other women, then becoming a priestess where you're required to have sex with other women so as to reach god, that could be a good way about doing it as well. Wow. It definitely sounds like they needed to escape from that system. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, my final point was the Greeks had a firm relationship with the phallus. They were obsessed with them, <laughs> a little bit like me. Uh, Priapus was the Greek equivalent to Dionysus and had a very big and permanently erect penis. So it's interesting that that you were saying that. In this article that I was reading, they don't really go into the fact that it was very much a patriarchal society. It kind of touches on that. Uh, in the fact that women are seen as quite sexual objects, whereas uh, men are as well, but obviously men have the upper hand in that society, um, and so it's down to their prevalence, really. 
I think but it um, not makes you think about like what who who writes history, and so like mm. history is always written by men, really. And so these are the stories that are being told, like that have carried through. So we don't hear those other stories, really. What about ancient Egypt? They were a bit more equal with women, would you say, or not? I would argue probably not. Uh, and again, it depends on the woman. It depends on the, you know, so, some women were incredibly powerful in Greek and Roman society. Um, you know, if they had any connection with, uh, you know, any of the royalty or politicians, uh, some some women were, were, you know, did incredible things. But a lot of the time, the understanding of that society was very much, if you're a woman, you're the property of a man. So a lot of the things that women achieved and the, the women we hear that are written about is incredible because they achieved all that in spite of the fact mm. they were living in a society that really gave them the space to do it. So I again, this is from the text that we get, as Tommy said, it's written by men. So maybe there's stuff that's been missed out that we'll never truly know about. But I, I, it wasn't an equal society. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, people. <laughs> it wasn't what a revelation. A, I know it wasn't an equal society. I mean, we'll have to bear that in mind when we're doing our historical, never knowingly researched, uh, rigorously researched facts. <laughs> anyway, um, time is moving on. Should we move on to uh, Queens of Agony? Yes, please. Okay, um, this one's quite a long one. I've got two long ones and some short ones. Uh, so, dear old queens and Sasha, uh, I'm almost in my 30s, and for the first time in my life, or at least in a long time, I've found supportive, positive people that I hope to be friends with. As I'm in lockdown in a city uh, away from them now, we've been mainly talking through video chat and sometimes calls. In the process, I realized that for the first time, I'm the negative person in the group because my family and precious social circles were also negative. I was used to being the positive one. Now I realize that I'm the one criticizing all the time and I don't even know what to talk about without slightly complaining or making fun of something. I think I will... I will never be friends with these people that actually seem to enjoy talking to me to some extent if I continue like this. They will naturally move away from toxic people. What would you recommend me to do to be more positive around them? Well, I would say firstly, I think it's really interesting because I think that it's like this situation is providing a lot of time to reflect about how you interact socially. Yes. And so like, it's really interesting that they've managed to like articulate that fact that they that they are that person in the first place mm. and probably the fact that they've art they've managed to think that through as a, will allow them to come to their next point which is about trying to be a more positive person yeah um i'm stuck about where to go next with that but i feel like they're going in the right direction yeah how about you, Sasha? My, my thinking is that they've done, a really good, they've done a really good job at writing that, that to you. That's something that they might think of saying to their friends. 
actually explaining, you know, mm. if they're close enough to actually say, okay, uh, I know that I can be like this, or I have this propensity to be like this. And I hope you understand that it's not because I'm trying to be negative or to pull you down. Um, and, and maybe that will help them understand where they're coming from. But also um, another part of me feels that, yes, negativity by itself is not a great thing. Um, but you should play to your strengths and you should never have to completely invert yourself and change mm. just to become more palatable. So there has to be a balance. You can still be the sassy one in the group. You can still be the one that has different perspective because that might be what your friends love about you. Um, but maybe it's just a little bit about understanding that some things that you might say might actually hurt or they might cut when they're not intended to. But that doesn't mean that you have to try to become, you know, Barney or a CC CBBC presenter. Um, I mean, maybe what it is about that they they have naturally like a dry sense of humour and naturally sort of slightly like like a cutting situation or they can like, they put a flip side on it. And actually, I personally, I find that quite an attractive quality. Like it can be, it can be fun to have a negative voice in the room. Yeah. Yeah, I I think what they've done is, they've recognized something in themselves which is the first step i've kind of recognized some of this stuff in myself in the past uh i think i have a propensity to be quite negative sometimes um but it's about recognizing that and actually maybe flipping it a little bit but not entirely changing yourself you're allowed to have those negative feelings you're allowed to have those negative thoughts but it's about how you control that and not letting it permeate your whole kind of being in a way and um trying to find things to be positive about you know if if you find that you're being negative all the time try and find something to be positive about give your friends compliments find something positive about them that you can say rather than something negative it's very easy to be negative and i think um yes certainly at this unfathomable time that we're living through at the moment we're all bringing a brick brought down everything is under the and magnifying glass and all of our kind of uh, experience and feelings are bubbling up to the surface because we're having to deal with ourselves a lot but it's it's good to recognize all of this stuff and think about how what ways can you change what is something you don't like about yourself and what can you change what can you do to change that i don't think it's for us to tell you how to do that but i think it's it's good that you've recognized it and that you need to find ways in which you can change, turn that around in yourself. Yeah. And just to add to that, like, but don't give yourself a hard time about trying to change because you've, 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 you've noticed the problem already. Yeah. <laughs> let's, have the next let's have the next problem. Uh, oh, dear old Queens, I'm happily married to my beautiful husband and I love him very much and still think he's the most attractive man I've ever met, both inside and out. Over the years, he has gained some weight, and this is affecting his self-image, his health, and also our sex life. No matter how much I tell him I think he's beautiful, he's very insecure about his physique, and I feel it's holding him back. I believe he would benefit a lot from a more healthy lifestyle. He suffers from migraines and has asthma, and has very low bodily reserves, especially with the current crisis. 
I'm afraid of the negative consequences of his lifestyle. I would like to address my concerns and help him gain more confidence. So far, my attempts were not successful. He simply loves food and is a real couch potato. When I suggest altering his diet or joining me for a bit of exercise, he feels cornered and doesn't want me to push him into something he doesn't feel ready for. I wonder how to discuss this issue without making him feel more insecure about himself. Should I respect his boundaries or try and convince him to change his lifestyle? What do we think about that? So I would say that he needs to... I wouldn't. I, I actually wouldn't say respect your boundaries. I would just let him alone. Yeah. I would just like... he. There's no way I feel like that he can go, oh, maybe you should have a salad and not that burger like if he wants the burger he can have the burger and sit on the sofa like he's got to be like if he wants to if he wants to change then he should be then he should make that decision himself yeah i have a it burger and sit on the salad but he's he's not saying like i oh he's gained some weight and i don't fancy him anymore so that's not a problem so like i think that the only person that can really help this person is himself totally. and i think that maybe that's about like yeah so if he if he shows signs of interest then it's about like encouraging that and supporting that but i don't think there's a there's a way to kind of push that agenda to him mm. yeah, n- nobody ever decided to join a gym or you know change their lifestyle because someone else bullied them into it it, it always has to come, you have to be motivated to do it yourself. And ideally, not from a place of guilt. You know, guilt back to negativity again is one of the worst motivators. It, will, it won't get you anywhere. Uh, it will just get you back in bed in the sofa, on the sofa again. So it's going to have to come from him. If he wants, you know, if he brings up the conversation and is saying, you know, I don't know what to do. I want to change. What should I? I do that's when you enter in conversation and you together you can brainstorm ideas but if he's not being the one that's bringing it up i think it's going to be very difficult to to do anything that won't be taken as patronizing or controlling yeah i mean i uh, this kind of strikes close to home with me because i've been in situations like this and i've been the i've been the fat one so um I, uh, I, yeah, I've battled with weight and body issues and, and things like that. And the thing is, is that I'm quite body positive. I think if you're happy with the way that you are, you don't have to change. And society or your boyfriend or whoever doesn't have to change what you look like. But if you want to change, then that's when you make the change. And it's really difficult. It's so hard sometimes. I'm a comfort eater, especially if I'm down or depressed. I want to eat, you know, and nothing can stop me from doing that. And yeah, maybe this is an issue with your boyfriend. Maybe there's an underlying emotional issue here that has drawn him down this path. And um, you need to talk to him about it and not bring it up as being something to do with his weight. What's going on with him emotionally? And, f- and find out if there's an issue there. Because if there is, by dealing with that issue, you might help him onto the path for dealing with everything else. I don't know. But that's just my experience. I think you're very wise, Bernie. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Sometimes. 
anyway, hopefully that's helped. Um, we've got a more lighthearted one now, hopefully. Um, dear old queens, I'm seeking help for what's the best gift I can give my boyfriend during this season when we can't go out. We can't see each other until May the 1st because he lives quite a, wa- a way away from our house. His birthday is approaching and I'm still clueless. How can I give him a gift and what should I give him? What are your suggestions, I boys? Really like- well, I don't know. I, I, I was just going to say I really like this problem. <laughs> it's a good problem, isn't it? It's a good problem <laughs> to have. I was just reminded of a time when I had to celebrate my my boyfriend at the time's birthday but I had this gig and I really wanted to do that gig um and so I persuaded him that it was a really good idea for him to come to the gig with me and I know that he didn't really want to go and it was somewhere it was a lot of there was a lot of travel involved and we had to catch a train from King's Cross um in the morning at something like seven o'clock so there was a lot to ask and so what I gave him was um, a gift for every station that we went through on the way to this, I think it was Lincoln. Um, and, and I thought that was oh. a very good idea that I did that time. Uh, obviously, this is a different situation, but I just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, it depends on the, that's, I love that. I See, I would love something like that. That's something that I, I think, my husband would do something like that for me and I think it was really cute. It depends on, on you as a couple, um, but I would say for me, um, I would try to do something like create a treasure hunt or something or, or create like a game, something that's kind of fun to play. Again, I'm, I'm an escape room designer, so that's my go-to is I would try to create a set of clues and then I might like hide some hints online, things like that, and then finally reveal something, which could be as boring as an Amazon gift voucher, as long as the process of finding it was fun. Or the other thing that my husband once did for me for a birthday was um, just get all of my friends and family to record a really small little message uh, and then he just edited it all together into one video. And this is when we were living in America and I was, you know, away, isolated from my friends and family back home. And it was wonderfully moving. So if you could go out and reach out to, you know, your 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 boyfriend's friends and family behind his back and get them just to make a little mm. mini clip of them and then add it all together and then send it to him on his birthday, I bet that would be really lovely. That's a latch idea and it fills that of, like, not having contact with all your close friends and family that's that's an amazing idea if you can do it during lockdown uh, i'm wondering if if the birthday is imminent and that's quite difficult thing to do um but i was going to suggest that that you do a little video for your boyfriend um telling him how you feel about him and um i don't know you know you could maybe dress up in a sexy outfit or something <laughs> it might stimulate something which has been missing during lockdown for him did they include a photo <laughs> no they never include a photo i just wondered if you might have any suggestions about what that outfit might be well, if you, looked- you know i mean a jock never offends right <laughs> i was gonna say mermaid tail or a mermaid tail i mean you know 
Who doesn't love a mermaid tail? I think a cowboy look. Cowboy look, leather man. I mean, any of those looks from the village people are just amazing, right? You could do a little dance, a little lip sync, you know. You know, a lip sync always tells someone you love them, right? With the right song. If I sent my husband a lip sync dressed as the village people, I think he'd divorce me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're in a dysfunctional relationship, Sasha. I just want to talk about this. Can we talk about this? (laughs) I've been talking... I've been talking to this guy on Grinder, and I actually met him before lockdown. So he texted me yesterday and said, oh, I've got some weird stomach bug. I'm not feeling great. And also, it's my birthday. So I managed to get all the pictures that he sent me. Most of them are dick pics. <laughs> and I put it together in a TikTok video with a kind of thing that they like a pro former, I didn't know what you'd call it, like with a music backdrop that kind of goes, happy birthday to you, <laughs> with just all these rolling. And um, I was quite pleased with the result, but um, it um, it didn't create the reaction that I expected. <laughs> Thank you. What was having his own dicks sent back to him? I know! Yeah, I, yeah. They maybe should have been your dick. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the things we do during lockdown. Um, okay, I've got one last thing, uh, which isn't really a problem, but I thought I'd read it out anyway. Dear old queens, we, the younger gays, probably don't say this enough, but here you go. Thank you from the bottom of our heart for being brave and proud and paving the way. Are you crying? I'm going to read this again when I'm not crying. Dear old queens, we younger gays probably do not know how to say this enough, but here you go. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being brave, proud and paving the way for us younger gays to be able to live in our truth openly. Thank you for choosing to speak up in the midst of hate and discrimination. Um, Without you and your protesting, we would not be here today to openly date. You are all heroes. Um, I mean, that's not particularly speaking to me or you, Tommy. I think it's speaking to everyone. I don't know how how you feel, Bernie. And and Sasha, you're much younger, so I don't know how you feel either. But I feel like I was on the cusp of 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 that point where there was there was so much more to fight for yeah um and i and i kind of missed that opportunity although there was things that i got involved in mostly i feel the same way as that person does like really grateful for everyone else but i can't help thinking that that trauma has passed through the kind of queer generations yes totally and i i I think that's why i got quite emotional reading it out because it, it all of that stuff really hits me quite hard uh, in terms of not necessarily our generation, but the generation that happened before us and the people that were so brave. I had a um, had a message from Richard Aslan, who's a friend of ours, uh, about um, us talking about, in previous episodes, we talked about Danny LaRue and mm-hmm. uh, Larry Grayson and how brave they were how they, in the face of adversity at a time when perhaps it was illegal or it certainly wasn't um, wasn't accepted to be out and gay, they were out there doing it 
being it and representing all of us in a way and paving the way for the life that we live now. Yeah, I, I feel, you know, I, I know I'm only 32. And so I, I don't you know, by some standards, I'm already dead in the gay community. Uh, uh, no, no, this is what this podcast but... is all about, Sasha. Uh, I'm 50. <laughs> and uh, Tommy's closely on my, <laughs> on my tails. So it's all about it's still it's okay to be gay and older. <laughs> yeah, and I, but I, the thing I find interesting is I feel between two worlds. So I definitely feel a huge amount of privilege. Uh, and I'm so thankful because I study history and I that's what I'm all about is looking at history, like all these pe- people that paved the so I can make stupid YouTube videos like that's, you know, the things that I take for granted, you know, my ability to shout about queerness on Twitter uh, is so easy because it was so hard for people that came before. But at the same time, I've got like 18 and 19 year olds uh, direct messaging me, um, you know, who, who are finding their way and are still lost. You know, mm. there's still a lot of pain and suffering in the queer community. Yeah. And I, I want to add that a lot of, and probably hopefully applies for you too as well, sometimes you don't know that you're fighting just by living. Yeah. Some of the things that you've done in your past were just, you know, well, I just had to get by and I just did that and I made that decision. But then when people look back on it, they'll thank you and say, oh, wow, you were brave for doing that. But it mm. didn't feel like bravery when you did it. No. I'm also thinking a lot at the moment, and I think that's because I've been given more time to think. It's like when you're thinking about gay liberation, actually, what we, what, what, what past gays had to do was fit into something that was also that that was already created by a heterosexual ideal. Mm. It wasn't. It wasn't about them fitting in with us. It was about us fitting in with them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's uh, it's really interesting, and it's it's. Uh, I think another reason for getting emotional is that there are so many countries in the world that are still going through this shit. It's still illegal. There's still a death sentence. And in some of those countries, this podcast has been listened to. Um, we've, uh, I, I was looking at the demographics today. I mean, we've, we've been listened to in Uganda, um, Russia now. And it's quite inspiring that people are listening to us. And we're obviously touching part of their lives uh by doing this silly gay podcast and knowing that there's other people out there that they can connect with and yeah i just think about everyone that's gone before us and actually done a lot of action work fighting for all of our rights that we have now and hopefully we can still have in the future i was gonna quickly just shout out though the the trans community yeah which is the articles being written by trans and gender fluid kids is what was being written by gay about gay men 30 40 years ago yeah uh, with, you know they're, they're having that fight that happened was happening 40 years ago for the queer well for the gay community yeah. it's, it's still happening for these vulnerable kids and that breaks my fucking heart that really does when you look at timelines that like probably a gay male timeline is much more further on than uh, than um than a trans line yeah. in terms of accept yeah. like society acceptance but that's why we need to stand with them which is why I exactly what and, i was going to say and uh regardless of our age and what our beliefs are you know anyone that is has been under the pressure of oppression by society we should identify with and stand with them because 
you know, that is our history and and continues to be our history in many respects, even in this country, but certainly in so many other countries around the world. It's that beautiful thing that, you know, trans women were standing by those gay men at Stonewall. The lesbian women who were donating blood to gay men dying of HIV. The gay men who were helping lesbian women to have families. These communities... We are, you know, I'm very keen that LGBTQ+, plus, you know, even if you want to call it alphabet soup, all together, because we have always had a shared fight. Uh, and so just to echo what you said, it is so integral that those of us that have got to the, you know, the top of the table or approaching, we're not even there, but we're moving that direction to look back and just like see who's still stuck down at the other end. Mm. Um, let's on. Uh, let's end on a more positive note. What What have you guys got planned, which is positive for the weekend? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you really do surprise me. I mean, I've got like several clubs to go to, okay. uh, performance, uh, an opera, and uh, you know, no, I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I might do a remake. I might do a remake of the Merman in the bar. Good. Uh, I'm looking oh, forward to getting, getting stuck into the viral film festival. Yeah, films are good. Uh, I'm going to be chatting with all my friends and probably having a few glasses of wine uh, over the weekend as well. Sasha, you've got a you've got a lovely husband that you live with. Yeah, he's downstairs listening to the Phantom of Op, as you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing could be gayer than that. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go downstairs and join him. So we'll, we'll probably be living this sort of like little prairie, little house on the prairie existence over the weekend. We'll go out and we'll pick wild garlic mm. and then we'll make our own pesto and, you know, sit in the garden if we can. Yeah, I, I want to spend some time with my husband because despite being locked down and we're in the same house, I've been trying to work full time, uh, trying to, to, to make the rent. Uh, and so I actually haven't seen much of him. I think the weekend is going to be about just spending some actual time together. Great. Okay. I'm going to spend some quality time with the flies that are hanging around in my flat. <laughs> um, I've got a very nice dragon tree that I've lived with for the past 25 years. So we're going to have some really good quality time together. Uh, not that we haven't over the past 25 years, but, you know, it, it may need watering. So I'll do that. Um, <laughs> anyway thank you for being with us Sasha it's been lovely to have your input on everything uh, say goodbye uh, I'll say goodbye thank for, you so no, much for having me take care loves <laughs> bye bye Sasha say goodbye Tommy goodbye I was going to say just take care loves <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will see you next time on what that old queen goodbye stay safe see you next week you have been listening to what that old queen written and presented by tom marshman and bernie hodges the show was produced by bernie hodges in lockdown 2020 for hodge podcasting If you'd like to sponsor a show, or you'd just like to be a guest, or you have a question for the Old Queens, you can email on hello at thatoldqueen.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.